Oh, but his business acumen, oh, it speaks for itself. He's got this amazing replicator, the Quark 2000. You know, I've never seen anything like it. This is the Quark 2000? Hey, get away from that! That's my intellectual property! Quark, be reasonable! That's it! Everyone out of the bar! We're closed! Are you kidding? Minister! That replicator contains trade secrets! Kira, they're trying to rip me off! How dare you! <laughs> Korzak! Alpha contingency, now! Transfer complete. Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast for two Trek fans. Step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between the Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on Deep Space Nine... This is uh, Tyler Orton dangling my legs off the second story of the promenade. Did you ever think we'd be back here again? <laughs> well, yeah, I saw the uh, the season three trailer for um, Lower Decks a couple uh, weeks ago, so I, I, I did I did think that, yeah. That's true enough, true enough. But yes, we are here this week to talk about the latest episode of Lower Decks, Hear All, Trust Nothing, as well as later in the show, we'll talk about the latest episode of Andor. But yes, we have gone back to DS9. We finally have official continuation of the story of DS9. Tyler, how did this one measure up for you? Well, it's interesting because, look, this is, I think, like the most direct, like, crossover episode in the traditional sense of what a crossover is. Since I think um, Voyager's Caretaker, you know, in which we actually did visit Deep Space Nine in that one. And you have, you know, some uh, characters as well as settings, like, crossing over here. I I don't consider it to be a crossover when, like, James Cromwell uh, shows up in a video recording in an episode like Broken Bow. Uh, you know, Seven of Nine popping up in Stardust City Rag in season one of Picard. That's not a crossover. It, it's characters kind of bouncing back and forth between. I think this is a true crossover episode. I think it did exactly what it needed to do. It didn't like um, upend all of what we loved about <laughs> Deep Space Nine. It delivered what we loved about Deep Space Nine. I think what we can discuss, though, I think what will be interesting is maybe kind of what the implications are for uh, the Star Trek universe, finding out what we know here, uh, as well as what it means for a lot of the characters that we care so deeply uh, about in uh, Deep Space Nine. But Cam, what's your initial reaction to uh, Episode 6, Season 3, Lower Decks? I feel in some ways like a hypocrite because this episode was just like pure fan service for DS9 <laughs> and I don't know how it would play to someone who had never watched DS9 but I enjoyed the hell out of it. I thought they did a really good job evoking just sort of the tone and atmosphere of DS9 while simultaneously heightening it to make, you know, Quark a little more cartoonish than he is on DS9 for example. And I thought they just found a fun way to work a story into that that felt true to it. I liked acknowledging sort of the after effects of the Dominion War. Um, This one was just a lot of fun. And I thought, you know, the B story, which we'll talk about afterwards, I thought that was very effective too with Mariner. No, I want to start with the B story, Cam. That's what everybody's waiting to (laughs) hear about. Actually, yeah, that is the B story. The C story, we'll talk about Dabo for about 15 minutes. (laughs) Okay. The Dabo stuff was fun, especially when um, uh, Boimler gets court 
uh, corks box at the end, you know, and there's that one kind yeah. of shot of him like walking away with like fringy ears as a souvenir as well as, you know, like uh, stuffed animals like uh, that would totally be me. Uh, but uh, look, um, I, I kind of want to get into it. Like just a few weeks ago, you and maybe even last week, we were talking about like who would be the best Deep Space Nine characters to return to the fold of Star Trek. And I think you and I were kind of talking about kind of the live action aspect of it. But we mentioned, you know, Quark and Kira, they just simply make the most sense. You know, it's not going to really rough up the mythology of the Star Trek universe too much if, you know, you bring those two back. It's also going to excite audiences more than, say, if you're bringing back um, Esri and Julian, two characters that I really like, but they're not quite as iconic as Quark and Kira are here. And also, we know that Quark and Kira, their place seems to be on the station. Um, I would not have minded it if if we saw, you know, Jake Sisko kind of walk by or something, because I kind of feel as if Jake is on the station for a, a little while. You know, I think this episode takes place, if I had to wager a guess, maybe four or five years after the events of uh, what what you leave behind. It, it, that, that's my rough estimate. I'm sure I can double check on Memory Alpha to see. But um, it, it, it's interesting in that what, what it does confirm, though, is at this point, um, Bejor has not entered into the Federation. And I think that was one of the the big arcs that uh, we were uh, kind of supposed to follow, I I suppose, from episode one, Emissary. And it it came down to the fact that, you know, Cisco said, no, uh, I have a prophecy. Do not join the Federation for now. Um, And that's how Bejor escapes, you know, kind of the brunt of the attacks uh, from the Dominion War. And I kind of thought in my head that maybe after the Dominion War, we would have been fast-tracking Bejor into the Federation. So, it, look, look, this doesn't, like, ruin, like, the universe for me. It's just my, my own head canon. And, and look, th- this, to me, is canon. This is how things are shaking up. And I, I just, I wonder if we get um, more hints, maybe in, like, Season 3 of um, Picard, you know, which takes place about 20 years after uh, this Season 3 episode of Lower Decks. I, I wonder if we get more hints about uh, what became of uh, Bejor's efforts to join the Federation. Yeah, like this episode felt like the safest way, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but like the safest way to revisit DS9 with kind of upsetting the storytelling apple cart um, because we didn't acknowledge what's been going on with Cisco. We stuck with the status quo of the end of DS9 where, yeah, the Bajorans hadn't joined the Federation, which was always one of the really smart things about DS9 where from episode one on, you're like, well, clearly we want them to be in the Federation because the Federation is the greatest thing of all time. And then we spend seven seasons examining the Federation and go, you know what? It is great, but like maybe the, the Bajorans aren't quite ready and this makes sense to me. So I think yeah. that's like the genius of that show. But I like that this one continued that theme. It didn't feel, I mean, who knows if what kind of, you know, interests there were just from the outside forces who work, you know, for the Kurtzman factory with plans for DS9 stories, if they wanted any major, major changes made to canon or not. But I thought this one did a good job of keeping this true to where that show ended, acknowledging kind of where it had, you know, moved to over the course of the show, and uh, letting us feel like we could immerse ourselves in a world without having to, like, kind of take stock of a shifted dynamic of what the mm-hmm. uh, the station is involved in. Because this was not an episode, like, desperately obsessed with mythology. It was not looking to involve you in new DS9 mythology. It just wanted the trappings and the vibe of DS9. Well, and it's actually funny. The last episode of Deep Space Nine that I watched during my current rewatch of the series was, in fact, Starship Down. 
And that was the one that featured uh, Quark negotiating with the Karema uh, at that time. And uh, so it's just funny that they made a return. And it, when we're talking about mythology here, you know, they set out to what uh, Freeman called or described as uh, healing the scars from the Dominion War. And I was just like, okay, <laughs> they're acknowledging that. They're reopening, like, negotiations. It seems as if uh, Odo's got folks... Uh, on board with his kind of thinking about maybe you don't need to control every aspect of the universe, uh, you know, founders, you know, uh, yeah, hey, he, uh, he healed them of the disease that the Federation gave them. Um, maybe they <laughs> might, I don't know, have some conflict yet still about uh, the Alpha Quadrant. Um, I'll tell you this, Cam, when uh, we come back and we see Kira, like, just strolling through Ops, landing inside of uh her office and staring at the at the wormhole i'm just like oh thank you and and it just it, <laughs> it, it, it's fun to see you know that she and shacks were buddies they go way back into the uh occupation resistance era and even <laughs> kira's stupid joke about um you know it won't be the uh starfleet if they don't throw you some curveballs and then she picks up cisco's ball and throws it in the air i'm just like okay you know, I don't, to me, it's just like, like you said, it, it's fan service galore, but to me, it, it doesn't seem like the the real, like, wink, wink, pandering sort of stuff. It, it's more like, oh, this that's so sweet sort of fan service. I mean, I don't know what the uh, typical fan takes from the um, replica of the opening credits of DS9, <laughs> yeah. but it was great. I enjoyed it. I was, like, so excited just to see the visual of DS9. I mean, this was a beautifully animated episode, Oh yeah. and it really felt like, you know, when they did, like, Trials and Tribulations on DS9, and it was like, if we're going to do an original series crossover, this needs to look like a million bucks. It felt like there was a certain responsibility they felt in bringing DS9 onto Lower Decks as well. Oh, you know, I, I, I take my words back. It, it probably, the last real crossover would have been Trials and Tribulations, not uh, mm. Caretaker and Voyagers. Like that, that I think is a true crossover. And, and what one of the best crossovers in all of television history, much, my, uh, much less Star Trek there. Yeah, what about Flashback Uh Voyager? Okay. That one's, a, that one's an iffy that- one, right? Because it's a movie as opposed to a TV show and yeah. Yeah, I'll say this. Um, it aired the same week as Trials and Tribulations. So um, <laughs> I, I, I'll give the nod to Trials and Tribulations as to what was the last one, especially the last great one. Sure. That Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, there's also fun stuff just with, I and mean, we talked about it, like, like Tendi examining her identity and what it means mm-hmm. to be an Orion. And I like the fact that the reveal was that um, some Orion guy was adopted by Cincinnati Earthlings. And all he knows is uh, from the uh, hollow novels about uh, Orions, the, the ones with uh, uh, the ladies um, showcasing themselves on the front cover somehow. Uh, but it also kind of made me uh, think of like Worf and like Worf tried to out Klingon every other Klingon and kind of like this overcompensation sort of uh, mode of his and yep. that's what it seemed happened with this particular Orion as well although I think uh, Worf uh, could kind of stack up better in the face of you know uh, a, a person getting kidnapped and a ship needed to be stopped than what this Orion Ensign did well like typically when I've seen Orions on Star Trek they seem quite clever like quite bright and this uh, particular Orion did not come across that way <laughs> So, in yeah, all fairness, um, he was mm. uh, a guy, Orion, versus a woman, Orion. We did find out it's the women that uh, are the smart ones uh, on that planet. 
That's true. That is true. Although, like, I recall the Orion males on the animated series were at least at least capable. At least capable. Okay. But okay. Um, no, 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 that's because they were being directed by the women. Oh, that's right. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I like that there was like a subtle like um coloring difference between the two as well because that's something you know when you look at the various Orion they've shown on the history of Star Trek there's often differences likely at the time just due to makeup differences but I like that they kind of show that Orions could look different versus this one monolithic look that they all have that has to look the same so I thought that was actually a really nice touch and it's it's funny I think you know we talked about Kira and Cork making a lot of sense and I think just like last week maybe the week before I was saying how much I would like more insight into Tendi's backstory, and uh, here we are, where we got at least um, you know a lot of verbal mentions about what's going on. I did get a lot of humor out of the long extended just cringe of Tendi groaning at this guy, basically throwing around all these kind of um, Orion stereotypes. Yeah. And then at the end, we get this reveal of like Tendi is the ultimate space pirate and has pirate powers and could do all these incredible Matrix like things. I thought that was actually a very funny reveal there coming at the end. Oh, yeah. I wrote in my notes, you know, Tendi the badass. But the other thing I immediately thought afterwards is like, what has her season long journey been so far? We're, we're more than halfway through this season. And remember in the season finale uh, in season two, um, they're sitting up her journey to be about being in the senior science division training program. And mm-hmm. I think we've heard one mention of it so far this season. It just, it really hasn't seemed to factor into her character at all so far. It's funny because uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I was actually just reading something the other day, no truth to it necessarily, but it was just like fans speculating if they jumbled the airing order just because these sorts of things haven't really paid off at all. And it feels like, None of that is acknowledged, but I don't think that is supported by the things that have happened on the show. But it definitely feels like that, like because that announcement of Tendi getting that promotion felt like a big event. And to really do nothing with it is kind of, it's strange. I can't say it like bothers me. I don't feel like I've been robbed of good Tendi material, you know, the last handful of episodes. But it's just kind of strange from a storytelling point of view. I think maybe they just kind of missed the mark in terms of what their intentions were, in terms of what they're setting up. And maybe they just find, you know, like, why do something um, half-assed if you don't have a great idea or a great hook into it? Um, wait to be inspired. But I just wish that they'd give it more of just kind of a, a cursory, like, mention. And I think that's just, it's just been mentioned once so far this season, and that's that. And I'm just like, eh, okay, well, whatever. It also feels, maybe it's just me, but does it feel to you like there's been less Lower Decks characters on bridge material this season than, like, season two? Yes, and season one as well. I I really, I mean, we haven't really spent much time in the bridge at all so far. No, and we're at episode six now. We're past the halfway point. That definitely feels different than the last couple. The the most extensive time spent in the bridge was during the uh, season premiere in which the uh, Lower Decks characters kind of uh, took over the ship uh, temporarily. And since then, we really haven't been uh, at the uh, at the captain's chair much. Now, let's figure out why that could be. I think with Mariner, it makes sense they want some separation between her and her mother. So that allows that to be the case if you don't have the two of them on the bridge together. Boimler... I don't know that there's a good reason that can really pop into my head. 
Well, I, I don't think there's necessarily a reason uh, for this. I just think that the writers are chasing kind of the stories that they're most interested in. It's just they've been pulled in other directions versus some of the bridge-based stuff that we got in the first two seasons. Yeah, yeah. And it's also like, how many story ideas do they have about sticking the Lower Decks crew on the bridge? You know, we don't want this to get repetitive the way that, yeah. you say, like the show first started, where it was the Enterprise, or not the Enterprise, the Cerritos being taken over every episode for like five episodes if they don't have like really inspired bridge stories i'm not asking them for the, you know for them to be on the bridge yeah well exactly um uh, <laughs> speaking of inspired stories uh, we finally got that uh, meridian shout out that i've always been waiting for when uh <laughs> mariner was threatening quark with uh that copy of the uh holographic kira's body with Cork's head on top from one of the worst episodes of Deep Space Nine. So, uh, look, I, I we kept saying like season one was like I never thought I'd get a reference to that episode. Look, they will reference anything, like no matter how obscure, and that's why I'm totally down with this show. The first canary in the coal mine uh, of that type of humor for Lower Decks was the reference. Remember to that like villain character that we had to look up um, in like season one. I don't even, it was like, I don't even remember what episode it was, but it was like some rando villain that we've completely forgotten. And then it was like, huh, they're willing to do that, huh? Okay. And so now, yeah, like the fact we had move along home references last week, and then this week we have, you know, references to Meridian. I mean, <laughs> there's, is there anywhere left to go? Well, uh, thankfully they did not do a profit and lace uh, shout out in this return to Deep Space Nine. Yes, that can be the uh, second one when they go back again. <laughs> okay. Um, let me ask you this, Cam. Um, okay, what other potential crossovers could you do through Lower Decks that would prove to be a little bit more difficult through, you know, kind of live action? In that, like, I... I <laughs> this is what I got to thinking, in like a, a crossover visit on the Enterprise E would be incredibly depressing. It's like... The only people left would be Jordy, Beverly, and Jean-Luc. Right. Because everybody else is either dead or on a, a new assignment. And I'd be like, okay, well, that would not be fun to watch. Uh, so it's kind of like, I, I, I bet they could get all the voice actors to do it. But it's like, w would it be a fun, wacky time like it was on Deep Space Nine? No, it would not. It would be depressing. And I, I think Picard season three will be depressing enough. Yeah, no kidding. More trauma. <laughs> fingers crossed, fingers crossed. But um, no, I um think I have a pretty good answer to this one, actually. And it's something that as soon as it popped into my head, I'm like, please, God, do this. You have the Lower Decks characters pop on a holodeck program of a, a uh, adventure of the Enterprise crew, a la the finale of that show. And you make some jabs at that finale. Okay, okay, that would be amazing. Um, and there has to be a chef moment too. Yes, exactly. And hopefully they could get everyone back, but at the very least they could get, you know, Bakula would do it, and you know, a lot of them would. I, I think pretty much anyone but uh, Jolene Blaylock would be a lock to do this. Yes, I, that's what I agree. Yeah, yeah. One more uh, Jeffrey Combs shout out. Uh... Uh, he can make another return, uh, in this case playing <laughs> Shran, instead of a uh, an evil computer. Yeah, yeah. I would love, and I don't know that they'll do this, just because, you know, obviously several actors are 
passed on, but like I would love a merging of like the Lower Deck show with the 70s animated series where you blended those groups of characters together. I think that could be so cool. Yeah, you know what? That <laughs> like we did have a little bit of a reference to that in season 1. Remember when they showed like uh an image of Kirk and it was in the animated style of you know back the 70s animated style of illustration there and i thought that was a really cool shout out if there's some sort of crossover that way you know um that would be that would be pretty badass yeah like there's three cast members although Chekhov never showed up on the original animated series but you could still do an animated version of him and have sulu and kirk on lower decks i think that could be really fun and honestly like there's been so much talk over the many i guess decades about like is William Shatner going to have a cameo in the latest J.J. movie and all that sort of stuff? Is, is Kirk ever going to come back? And I think that could be like a fun way to bring him back without dealing with all the headaches of canon. Um, you know, it's kind of like we just got the news the other day that Hugh Jackman is going to come back and appear in Deadpool 3 um, as Wolverine after saying he didn't want to do that role anymore with uh, Log after Logan. And it's like, that makes sense. It's like you're kind of doing a comedic take on that character. It doesn't feel like you're doing anything to the the story canon of the character. And I think that would be a great way to deal with James T. Kirk, the Kirk or the uh, Shatner version, is to bring him on to Lower Decks. And I don't think necessarily Shatner cares that much about the story canon of the original sure. series, <laughs> judging from everything he's ever said at every convention in history. But um, nonetheless, I think that would be a perfect way to do it. Yeah, I'd be totally down for that. Uh, now, would it be a little bit too... Uh, I don't know if like uh, disrespectful is the right word, but uh, I, I don't know if you had like Ethan Peck, maybe uh, briefly do uh, the voice of Spock, or do you just have to leave that to be the domain of Nimoy from here on out? Well, maybe here's the better question. Would they look at like Ethan Peck or would we get something similar to Prodigy where they take, you know, old Spock dialogue and use the animation and kind of merge the two? Because it worked reasonably well on Prodigy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as long as we have uh, Leonard Nimoy being the one that says censors, like that would be uh, <laughs> that would be perfect too. Yeah, because I think that way you could at least get a couple more characters onto the show. And that could be really fun. Um, and they could keep it brief, like one line of dialogue or something, just to have them all kind of represented. Now, it's still unclear to me exactly when Prodigy takes place. I, I think it's a couple years after Lower Decks, I think. Do you mm, yeah. think that Prodigy could lend itself to some other form of a uh, crossover? You know, like we already have, you know, spoiler alert, but we, we it's not just Hollow Janeway, but we have Admiral Janeway coming back. Do you think that's going to be the extent of it, uh, her and Chakotay? Hmm. Because it, it's a different style of animation. It's a different like um, feel and tone in the universe as well. It could be fun to you know I don't know. You, you, you bring back Harry. <laughs> Please make sure he's a captain by now. But bring back Harry Kim, and it, it, in a more serious role, you know. Yeah, like I think you could. I think it's actually kind of likely that other characters, probably from Voyager, do pop up on Prodigy. Like, I could see Tuvok showing up or something. That would make a lot of sense to me. Um, 
I don't know that we'll get a lot of other crossovers though on Prodigy. Like I was thinking of yeah. initially like lower decks because it's animated, but I'm like, I don't like this is a show aimed at like you know younger kids. Are they looking to advertise lower decks on Prodigy? Maybe not, but true, true. You know, similar to how they um brought on classic characters on Prodigy, I think a big part of just the design of that show is to introduce young kids into the world of Star Trek to want to dive deeper into it. So introducing like iconic characters, maybe some more TNG characters makes a lot of sense for just kind of like opening up the gateways for kids to have a sense of who these icons are. You know, it's kind of like um, one thing I've noticed is if you look at um, say like Marvel toys, they will put out toys of a lot of characters who have never appeared in any movie, but are comic book characters and they will show up in a movie like three years later. And it's like, they very clearly are getting those characters' faces out there so kids know who they are in advance of kind of diving into these movies. And I think that would be really smart is to kind of showcase these characters to young kids so that they have a sense of that when they, you know, move on to TNG or whatever. Okay, so we'll we'll see uh, Icheb as an ensign in Prodigy. And then mm-hmm. if we follow the timeline correctly, <laughs> you know, in a few years, those kids can look forward to that that uh, man getting vivisected with his eye being gouged out uh, by Bejazel and company. Exactly. that You nailed it right there. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> like, I, I don't think Prodigy is going to dive deep on those characters, but I think it would make a lot of sense to have brief cameos for some of the, you know, TNG legends. And I, I kind of... Maybe I'm wrong in this assumption, but I almost feel like Prodigy by Design is going to do more of a uh, effort to work in Voyager characters just due to the relationships already with the, you know, obviously Janeway and then Chakotay being on the show to kind of like pave the way for those characters to kind of exist in that world. Yay, Joe Carey. Cass. <laughs> um, <laughs> Neelix would make a lot of sense on a kid's show. Neelix to me feels like, yeah, he would work. I was joking with a friend. Uh... <laughs> like what Naomi Wildman is up to right now. And I suggested that she's uh, still on route to uh, go visit Neelix in the Delta Quadrant on his asteroid colony at this point. <laughs> you know what? Naomi Wildman, though, would make a lot of sense on yeah. a show like Prodigy, where it's like a young member of, a very, you know, considerably, you know, younger member of Starfleet than, you know, your your classic characters to kind of work with your kid characters on the show. I think that could actually be really smart. Wasn't it weird that she was the only non-Borg kid on Voyager? Like, nobody was having children during that seven-year, like, mission back to Earth? Yeah, no, that is true. Maybe they were just trying to spare us stories like the bonding and what have you. Yeah, yeah, but it's like, (laughs) it, it just seemed like another lost opportunity. Like, I like Voyager, but a lot of the show just seemed to be around missed opportunities, and I think that was a big one, and like, what you're showcasing here is that Voyager's becoming more of a community. You know, people are realizing, you know, we, we ha- could we be out here for decades to come? Like, does that mean I'm just not going to have any sort of family? You know, like, uh, even in an episode like E Squared on Enterprise, you know, we had that generational ship in which descendants of the original crew would thrive. You know, it just felt as if Voyager was never interested in telling what I I think is like a kind of important, like human story, like a community story. Yeah, you would think at a certain point there would be more, maybe the halfway point of the show or something, there would be more of a sense of kind of the professional elements of of the crew kind of also 
sharing space with more of a society they would be building because there would be that kind of sense of we might not get home within our lifetime. And yeah, it is kind of a missed opportunity. Um, it would have been an avenue for Star Trek storytelling that you don't really get elsewhere. You got shades of it on DS9, I suppose, yeah. but not something you saw on Enterprise or, you know, TNG or anything. Yeah. Um, with regards to the Mariner B story, uh, it did not work for me. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, I don't know. Like, I, look, I, I, I did laugh at the idea of having to sit through, uh, your partner's friend's poetry slash interpretive dance night. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds painful, but when it concludes with Mariner, uh, shooting people with phasers, uh, then I kind of take a step back, and it, I, I can't really suspend my uh, my disbelief anymore. I'm just kind of rolling my eyes at what, what truly is kind of a psychotic uh, act, like shooting people against their will so that they're not consuming as much oxygen. That was the bit of it that didn't work for me, was like the ultimate payoff to it all. I thought... Everything else to do with that story of having to go to this, <laughs> you know, nightmare party for Mariner, I thought was really fun because it's just kind of like, you could tell the writers were like, okay, let's think about the character of Mariner. What are all the things that would annoy her? Let's work those all into this party. And I thought that was really fun to watch the character react to all these things. But you're right, like, the payoff to it... I think it would have been way more fun if you had Mariner taking charge. You know, there was the joke about Mariner being bossy. If you really got kind of the drill sergeant Mariner just like really taking a, um, you know, unusual, unconventional approach to solving the problem they were in and all of them kind of being having to be kind of corralled by her. That could be a lot funnier than the very quick fix of running around phasering everyone, which, as you said, it's um, psychotic, but it also is like... Now I'm just fascinated with the psychology of Jennifer, who's like, my hope was something like this would happen, that you would phaser all of my friends. That's kind of yeah. strange. Well, it's kind of like Jennifer's like, oh, Mariner, you're acting so weird. Why are you being so nice to my friends? And like, if you meet your partner's friends for the first time, you're you're, you're certainly always on your best behavior. You're trying to make a good impression. You know, they, they always say that's... Uh, the way to really impress your partner is, you know, making sure that uh, their friends like you, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and so of course Mariner would act this way, you know, like Jennifer must really not like her friends if she wanted Mariner to treat them like garbage. Well, it made me think of like, Tyler, remember when we were in journalism school and the years after where we would do our big group together, uh, get togethers with you know, the whole group of us from journalism school, we are all speaking this uh, common reference points and inside jokes and everything. And people would bring, you know, their new romantic partners or interests. And it was like, these poor people must have felt lost. But, you know, imagine if the night had ended with them running around like, I don't know, judo chopping us all to the back of the neck. Like, that would be bizarre. And it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't feel like real human behavior. No, no, it doesn't. Um... Well, look, maybe one little final note before we kind of uh, move our discussion uh, elsewhere. Um, so I think one missed opportunity with regards to the depiction of Deep Space Nine in an animated series is just like, it's not going to cost you a ton more money if you actually showcase more of the promenade. And that's during the live action you know, version of Deep Space Nine. We only saw, I think people like counted the windows or whatever that were on display. I think we only saw about one quarter, maybe one third of the promenade. That, that's all the set was built for. I think we could have, uh, it would have been great if we got like this kind of like uh, 
uh, if you kind of uh, did like a, a circum kind of uh, navigation, uh, like really quick camera move, like around the entire promenade. And maybe there are like a couple other little shops or I don't know, areas that we would not have expected uh, on showcase there. That would have been really cool. It's the sort of thing I wonder if would have happened if the show was a little longer, because we had quite a few stories going on in this one. So it felt like they gave us a lot of DS9 grandeur, but maybe not kind of the explorations of DS9 that a lot of us, you know, hardcore fans of DS9 would really like. Um, I I just wonder how much of that was dictated by how many stories were going on. They had like four stories going on. Yeah. And look, you had a lot of stories going on. Um, This, again, we talked about it last week. Uh, I think they hit kind of the right tempo. Uh, The, the show was moving at at a, uh, a clip, but I didn't feel lost at all. Mm-hmm. No, no. And I am a big fan of this new running joke of like Boimler being irresistible to attractive women on the show. Yeah, man. I, I buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a question for you. You know, we got to do this very grand revisit to DS9 on Lower Decks in a way that like most shows wouldn't be able to do. We have done the original Enterprise and the TNG, you know, Enterprise to death at this point. What other iconic Star Trek locations do you think would be really promising to see maybe next season in a special episode of lower decks like star trek locations and and for me i always go to you know ships because those are the prime settings mm-hmm. and look we the big location the most iconic location would be like the enterprise d you know mm-hmm. and look maybe there's a possibility to do kind of some sort of flashback episode almost you know where the crew is trying to be inconspicuous about like being in one of the most iconic ships ever, but they kind of have to hide because it's time traveling. You don't want to disrupt, you know, what the future will be. And so that's kind of the conflict is like, do you geek out or do you save the timeline? And I think that could be a lot of fun as you're going through the hallways, you're, you're hitting the uh, iconic uh, places like uh, 10 forward, the bridge, main engineering. I, I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that one is a like very strong possibility. I think TNG is high on the checklist for most shows, and we'll be interested to see if they work something like that into Picard season three. Seems mm-hmm. like they might do something there. Well, Cam, I I I shared with all the uh, the listeners that photo of a uh, Enterprise D, or at least a Galaxy class uh, ship uh, bridge under construction um when we were at uh las vegas and there's like this sparsely populated panel that i went to and watched the speaker who does a lot of the art design uh, over the last uh three four decades on star trek he shared that behind the scenes photo that really hasn't surfaced anywhere except for our podcast that's right yeah yeah and so like that to me like the ship that i would like to see a lot on oh i'm sorry, sorry, sorry i should clarify for listeners that under construction image was for season three of Picard. Yeah, yeah. Um, the ship I would really like to see on Lower Decks, I think a lot of people want to see Voyager. Um, I think it's more likely we get some sort of Voyager recreation on um, Prodigy. That seems to me highly, highly likely at some point. Um, I am really interested in seeing the Enterprise, you know, the NX-01 from Enterprise done on Lower Decks because I feel like for a long time, um, Enterprise was kind of the somewhat maligned, you know, um, Berman era show. 
and it's had this reappraisal and I would like to get another revisit there. We can have some musical cues. I would love to hear a Faith of the Heart, um, you know, joke or something like that on Lower Decks uh, and kind of solidify that ship as like one of the iconic locations of Star Trek. Yeah, it's just always funny, like how much that show has grown in esteem over the last two mm-hmm. decades and so which means that we can look forward to discovery and uh picard being uh one of the most highly regarded star trek series it's only going to take two decades camp in your lifetime do you think there's a future star trek show where they're like going back to the bridge of like la serena uh, <laughs> la serena <laughs> uh i if i was a, a a betting man i would say no no <laughs> Yeah, okay. Not even when you're like 80 years old or 90 years old. You're like, oh, my old friend, the Lesserina. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Um. So, Kit, maybe before we jump over to Andor, though, uh, look, I, we were talking about this last week, just the state of uh, the Star Trek Four and the Kelvinverse, and then we did find out this week as we're recording on uh, Thursday, April 28th, 29th, I should say, uh, that's, you know, uh, the next Kelvinverse movie is officially off the slate of Paramount's schedule. It was uh, going to be December 23rd. Um, I saw people posting online. It's like, well, what do you expect? The director left. And I, I think they've got it a little bit backwards there. We talked about it the other week. Uh, the reason that Matt Shackman left is because he knew that there was no movement going on with regards to uh, like progress on the production. He must have known that for like weeks, if not months. And that's why he departed. And after his official departure, that's where Paramount is finally saying, like, oh, yeah, th- this movie's not going to be moving forward, at least on the schedule that we outlined earlier this year. Yeah, this is I continue to be just baffled, baffled at the treatment of like the Kelvin verse um, by Paramount. It's just like they had what seemed like such a sure thing. Like, I think so many studios would pray for like a franchise launch like Star Trek 2009, which, you know, did well at the box office, but then like seemed to really catch on, you know, on home video and things like that. And to just completely like biff the trajectory of that franchise is just baffling to me. And well, well, it it wasn't just home video. It it was Star Trek Into Darkness. Like the box office Mm -hmm. there is is a highest grossing Star Trek film of all time. Like they were riding a wave. And they just biffed it all. Like I, I just, it, it yeah. just I, it, it's, it's just deranged what they were thinking about. I, I'm sorry, I, I digress there, sir. No, but yeah, no, I'm glad you brought up Into Darkness because that one's like the success of that one spoke to how much like the um, enthusiasm for that 2000, 2009 film had built that led into Into Darkness getting you know a bigger box office the second time around. It's it's what you want. It's that growth in a franchise. Um, Star Trek had briefly gone mainstream. It was always kind of niche. Yeah. And during the 90s, it, it hit this kind of cult, uh, pop culture peak, you know, in like mid-1990s with uh, the final few seasons of TNG. But this was like uh, Into Darkness 2009. Star Trek had legit gone mainstream. Yeah. And then long delays. You know, it took a long time for Star Trek Beyond to get going. And as that was... The what became Star Trek Beyond was kind of almost like last minute, <laughs> the yeah. way that like they'd been developing a whole other Star Trek three. And the fact that like, I, I don't know how if I don't even it seems so highly unlikely to me Star Trek four happens. I, I could be wrong. Who knows? But if it does, the amount of distance between Star Trek four and beyond 
is truly head scratching because it's not like this is, you know, the 1970s or 80s or something where like sequels are kind of like a, well, I guess we could try again. It's like we live in a world where you perfect number. You want to move you out every three years, two years if it's possible, but three years for sure. When we return to the Kelvinverse, um, Carl Urban is going to look like uh, DeForest <laughs> Kelly when he appeared on Encounter at Farpoint. I kid you not. It would be amazing if this movie gets prolonged for like a few more years. Like, I want the cast to come back but look recognizably older. Yeah. So future generations, unaware of the shooting dates, will watch those four <laughs> movies in a row and then really scratch their heads about what happened. <laughs> well, it was so weird, like, watching uh, Star Trek Four and Star Trek Five back-to-back, yeah, like the uh, mm. original series crew, uh, where <laughs> between the years, like, 1985 and 1980, or was it 86 and 89? Was that it? Yeah, that's right. 86, yeah. 89, yeah. <laughs> the crew aged a lot and i mean a lot in those three years and now like um bare minimum we're gonna have an eight-year gap if if the kelvin verse even returns this is legit the first time that i've ever been skeptical that the kelvin verse returns now like i've always been quite confident that after beyond we will get a return of the kelvin verse and now i'm just like i i don't think so i i i if i had to place a bet I'd, I'd say probably not at this point well because these actors are just tough to get schedules and so how many opportunities do you have to get them all together that's gonna not necessarily gonna stop the movie but it's gonna prevent a very quick shooting date like they're gonna have to negotiate this and figure it out and so it kind of closes up the amounts of available times you have to even shoot the movie so I don't know. Just think about the the contracts for these actors that you could have negotiated, you know, a Mm -hmm. decade ago versus how much more you're going to have to pay for a Chris Pine, a Simon Pegg, a Carl Urban, Mm -hmm. a Zoe Saldana. Like these (laughs) these actors are way more expensive now than they were, you know, just a a short period uh, ago. And this is just why like Paramount and it's not like a consistent regime. It's just every subsequent regime, executive regime that comes in keeps biffing it again and again and again. And I think part of the problem is like there's just been so much uh, turnover and attrition in the executive ranks that it's always Star Trek just always gets reset. You know, whatever the thinking is, whatever the strategy is by the new executive ranks star trek always falls victim to the reset button and i always wonder too like paramount in theory wants star trek movies out there because it's a you know valuable property for them but i often wonder you know they start to do negotiations with actors they start to you know develop these scripts and it's almost like they kind of get to a certain point look at the price tag get the you know wide-eyed look and go uh i don't know like it's almost like I like I can understand why that would kind of kick in if you look at, you know, kind of the little bit of underwhelming box office on Beyond, but it's just like that almost it seems like they're like paralyzed. Yeah. And I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know if it's just gonna take more time, someone else coming in with an entirely fresh take on Star Trek, the way that, you know, JJ Abrams did in two thousand nine. I don't know. It cause it does feel at this point if I were a business person as opposed to a Star Trek fan. I don't know if I would be hugely confident in gambling on Star Trek Four at this point. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to quote Chief Wiggum here in the episode of uh, Simpsons where they instituted a curfew. 
And uh, Chief Wig says, at this clearly extremely expensive billboard uh, about this <laughs> curfew, uh, you got to spend money to make money, Lou. And he just left it at that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just as you said. Like these folks just constantly, constantly seem to be paralyzed about making a decision, knowing how much it's going to cost. But look, if you want to make this franchise viable, uh, you, you look. You could have had like six movies by by this moment and by this year, rather than just the three. And, and we've had like a seven year gap at this point, or no, an eight year gap at this point. What the hell? Well, here's a question because a lot of this is about bringing the Kelvinverse crew back together, and no, I'm you know, sorry, can't heard it. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it is a six-year gap. Not, it's not an eight-year gap. I don't know. The, the, right, right. Yeah, the, uh, the pandemic has messed with my sense of timing. No, I mean you were talking about the crew of, um, uh, you know, the original crew aging a lot between '86 and '89. That was me during the pandemic. Yes, so same <laughs> I'm now like I'm now like Howard Hughes. I have like like long gray hair and all that sort of thing. But um. No, like the market research, as we heard, and, and your um, peen in jars too. <laughs> that was before the pandemic. Oh, that's true. Um, <laughs> but we heard, you know, that Paramount looked at market research and said the Kelvinverse crew made the most sense because audiences are familiar with them and what have you. Does that make if you are a studio and you want to continue the Star Trek brand, does that crew make the most sense to drop a lot of money on in bringing back? Because they come back, for example movie does well how many times are you going to get that cast back together to make movies versus you know a radical reinvention of the brand and trying to do a, a movie with maybe a cheaper crew that maybe you can get those actors for like three or four more movies i just i just think it's going to get incredibly more expensive to land all these folks make the timing line up i just it just seems very impractical at this point like prohibitively so it was like when Sony was going to do Spider-Man 4 with Tobey Maguire and crew, and they looked at that price tag and said, no, no, yeah. like this is just going to cost us so much money that we can't, we can't almost make enough to pay this off. Hey, don't worry. They followed up with the amazing Spider-Man uh, 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 double-ology or duology that we ended up getting. And we all lived happily ever after. <laughs> That's right. I just, I'm just saying the most redeeming fact is uh, during uh, Spider-Man No Way Home where uh, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield were comparing their villain escapades uh, who they've had to fight. And, like Andrew Garfield's, or not Andrew Garfield's, uh, uh, Tom Holland and uh, Tobey Maguire were comparing. And then Andrew Garfield pipes in like, well, I, I fought a guy in a rhino costume once. You know, like that, that was just kind of summarized <laughs> the state of the amazing Spider-Man universe. And the fact that when the sky broke open, there was a very clear silhouette of the classic Rhino character, very clearly showing that they have zero interest in revisiting <laughs> Paul Giamatti as the Rhino in the future. <laughs> Poor Paul Giamatti. He didn't, isn't he like a huge Spider-Man fan and like this is his dream job to play Rhino? It was, yeah. He had mentioned that on talk shows, how much he loved the Rhino character. And I believe that's why he was cast. Like, it was this enthusiasm that they were like, you know what? That's a fun idea. Let's bring him in. And, and pull his pants down and reveal that he has Rhino underwear. Like, uh, listeners, if you think I'm joking, go watch that movie again. That's literally what happens. This is how terrible the uh, the Amazing Spider-Man duology was. Or don't watch it again. Yeah, don't Just watch it. watch a clip on YouTube. Yeah, it's exactly. shorter. <laughs> um, okay. Andor? 
Yes, Andor. I found this episode far more comprehensible than the previous three. I like seeing the fallout. Uh, I think this is a strong outing, but Cam, I will be a hypocrite if I don't roll my eyes on the fact that Tony Gilroy, the showrunner creator, is clearly making a 12-hour movie, and this episode, it just, it kind of just stops. You know, there, there's, mm-hmm. it, this is not a... Di- this is not an episode at the beginning. Well, no, it's a, an episode at the beginning, a middle, but it just kind of, the episode just stops more than like concludes by telling like a full story. It's so obvious he's making a 12 hour movie and this is not what I want from television, you know, but I also wonder like, what's the alternative? Like, I don't think this is a show meant to have kind of those mission based episodes that you get done so successfully with uh, uh, The Mandalorian. I I don't think this is necessarily work with this corner of the galaxy that they're trying to carve out and tell a story of. So I don't necessarily know what the solution is. I I like what I'm watching, but I can't say I'm 100% satisfied. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. I I like the ideas of, you know, like uh, Stellan Skarsgård character having to worry about how you pay for a resistance, you know, like having to raise funds. Like that to me is like the interesting stuff going on here you know i just still a little frustrated with with the storytelling uh, that they're pursuing though i like that they're doing like a nuts and bolts series on star wars where it's like all the little elements that were kind of just glossed over because star wars was always a very fast-paced swashbuckling story they're like no no how does the rebellion operate how does the empire operate you know and working in sort of like the empire basically having this corporate um guards you know overseeing a sector like elements like that are what makes the show really rewarding for me. Um, it's definitely kind of like Star Wars nerdery going on, but that's fine. Um, and I think the aesthetics of this show are frankly astonishing. When I'm looking at like the Imperial meeting room there with you know all the um, the Imperial um, Security Bureau people in their white uniforms, it looks like a set from the 1970s. And like just that attention to detail, I thought was just beautiful. And I loved just the dialogue going on there. Like, it felt very smart. Um, it feels like a show that is genuinely fascinated with its world. I remain baffled as to, like, how this show will play to, like, you know, 12-year-olds who are really into Star Wars. <laughs> that interests me. Sure. But I'm almost wondering, I agree, like, the 12-hour movie thing is very obvious. But I'm wondering, because the first three episodes were, like, this, like, block of not really origin but basically how andor wound up where he is now i'm wondering if we're going to get like three episodes built around this heist thing and almost like three mini arcs that don't really stand alone in the way that say enterprise mini arcs did but kind of are you know like have a general overarching story among those three that attach to the larger whole Oh, based on an interview that I heard with Tony Gilroy on a uh, the Watch podcast, that that's doesn't sound as if what the plan is. Bummer. So, it, <laughs> like he he said that um, he had an idea for how he wants to start the season. He had an idea for how he wants to end it, and then it was just about figuring out what he called the mushy middle. And that doesn't give me much confidence. There, that makes me a little worried. Where are we just going to have like I don't know, like five six episodes in a row where it's it's kind of almost make work for these characters and i think that's what this heist is essentially it's part of this mushy middle that he's talking about and i'm just like okay i mean i hope it lands you know but i'm i'm just like i the problem is is like i I, i'm incredibly weary 
of whether this is going to be satisfying television or not. But at the same time, I, I, I guess I'm entertained. I think there's a lot of cool elements here, but I don't necessarily think this is like television storytelling at its best. And that's kind of my, my ultimate issue. And I bet there's a lot of people out there just saying like, oh, you're getting like way too critical. I, I No, I'm just being consistent with regards to like my criticisms about like uh, the storytelling and discovery in Picard. Like this is not television storytelling at its best. And it's, I, I, I suspect that if I just binged watched Andor, you know, episodes one through 12, you know, maybe around uh, Christmas time, maybe this would be a whole lot easier and less frustrating for me to digest. But I don't know. It's, I, I just feel very conflicted about a show that's, as you said, as you pointed out, it, it looks incredible. It has lots of interesting elements going on. But the question I keep asking is like, well, what does it all add up to? And what will it add up to by the end? I wonder, though, in terms of the binging, I think you can, I know, and I know my sister binged like The Mandalorian um, both seasons and had a blast with it. I wonder though, given the tone of Andor, what it would be like to binge like 12 episodes of this show. Like just a little heavy? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's not a uh, big sweeping kind of fun story. Like it has a, uh, this episode reminded me a lot. Um, I don't know if people remember The Bourne Legacy, but like the first I don't know, 20 minutes or half an hour of that movie is like Oscar Isaac and Jeremy Renner in a cabin in the woods. And a lot of this episode kind of reminded me of that sort of tone and energy. And I would also apply that a lot to the previous three episodes. And I do wonder if this is a show that on one hand is a large story that's meant to be watched kind of in fairly close succession, but at the same time, tone-wise is a little too morose to kind of sweep you up, you know, when you're watching episodes seven in a row, you know? Well, I, I would say that there are a lot of heavy dramas that uh, play well when binge-watched, you know? Uh, you know, something like uh, Deadwood. Uh, although Deadwood's incredibly funny, whereas um, uh, Andor is not a funny show <laughs> no, it is whatsoever. Not. No, it is not. <laughs> it's, it's not. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, I don't know, but you know what? <laughs> Here's a great example. Uh, season one of Picard, I thought it played exceptionally better being binge watched. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a show that's not exactly light on its feet. It's, it's not exactly hilarious. It, it is kind of heavy as well. So it's still played better it, when I think I watched that over the course uh, for my, um, I guess it's my third viewing because uh, when we were watching it week to week, I was watching every episode twice within a week and we do our podcast, blah, blah, blah. When I watch it for a third time uh, for our Blu-ray review, it, it it worked way better, even though I don't think it's a particularly great season of Star Trek. Yeah, no, that is true. That is true. So, I mean, I, we can only just see in the future how people feel about Andor. Um, I, I'm hoping I'm very happy when it's all said and done. It's just like... It is the ultimate slow burn Star Wars story. And actually, do you remember how we were talking about um, the uh, issue they had with Rogue One where people didn't realize it wasn't a sequel to The Force Awakens? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been interesting talking to people out in the wild um, about Andor. And, uh, you know, a lot of these people went and saw the Star Wars movies. They've watched The Mandalorian, but they're not people who obsess over this universe. You know, they're not sitting there on Wikipedia reading about the characters. And a lot of them don't remember who Andor is from Rogue One. Yeah, And so I can that. the show is not 
necessarily giving them a lot to hang on to because they don't really know who this character is. And I've definitely heard some frustration in that regard. Hilarious if they accidentally uh, spoil his fate when they look it up on uh, <laughs> uh, Google or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So well, I, I just you say like when you've encountered people in the wild. I don't know, just for me, the last two weeks, I haven't encountered anybody like at work or just out and about uh, other than you who's seen the show. Mm. I just uh, I'm not hearing kind of the uh, the buzz, I guess, uh, going around, at least uh, outside, you know, these online circles. Yeah, like for me, a number of people at work are watching it, but it could honestly less about Andor, but just the fact that this is. Star Wars series number, you know, well, we've had two Mandalorian, we've had Obi-Wan. The more of these Star Wars series that come out, the less and less people are going to be like, I have to watch that immediately. Um, so it could just be that factor as well. Kind of like the more of these Marvel shows that come out, the less people are talking about them the way like people were talking about WandaVision and Falcon quite a bit. But I don't really hear people talking as much about, you know, She-Hulk, for example. Or Moon Knight. Yeah. Yeah. Moon Knight as well. Yeah. So okay. that could be an well, element of it. Yeah. Look, uh, we we did forget to do our uh, intro. Uh, our these reviews are called Cam Dort. Mm. Uh, forgot to mention that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, look, we'll be back uh, next week though with uh, I don't know. Hopefully, another crossover episode on the part of Lower Decks that makes us smile, but probably not. Uh, you know, just uh, as we kind of wrap up our podcast here, I will say that. Um, Lord Dex is still really staying consistent. Um, there's really only been one episode so far this season that I've been kind of meh on, and it, it wasn't a bad episode. It was the one where they're trying to look for shortcuts on the ship to get the best quarters in some sort of lottery. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of that one. Uh, other than that, it, it's been far more consistent than any other uh, season to date. Um, it's kind of moving out of clip. I, I'm... I'm very happy where we are uh, 60% into this third season. Me too. Do you consider this week's episode um, the best of the season? Or do you still maybe look at the first episode? <sighs> I would say objectively speaking, uh, the season premiere is the best. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of what this one did for me emotionally, as I hear the Deep Space Nine theme ringing out as they circle around the pylons majestically, this is probably my favorite episode. And just hearing Kira's voice and uh, hearing Quark's voice again, that was wonderful. Although I will say, um, like Nanala's visitor's voice sounds identical to what she said like 25 years ago, you can tell that Armin Shimmerman's voice, like like anybody would, like he, he is a little older and that kind of, I, I did hear it a little bit more in his voice than I did with the non-visitors. Yeah, I noticed it especially um, in his first scene where I was like, is, is that Armin? That sounds kind yeah. of like Armin Shimmerman. Am I here? Is that not him? Is that an impersonator? But then when he came back later, it sounded really bang on. So yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure what happened there. Um, Maybe I forgot to mention. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, just that. Remember when uh, the Karema like turned all the power off, and then <laughs> next thing you hear is Cork doing his patented scream that we would get yeah. maybe once a season. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, I thought I thought that was great as well. And for me, I, I kind of come down the same as you, where this episode was in some ways the most you know spine tingling and rewarding, just seeing like all the DS Nine stuff. But I would say, like, on a story level, I think the premiere was still a bit better and, and funnier, too. But this is, a, this is a close second, so I enjoyed this a lot. 
And in terms of Andor, I, I think episode three was probably the most exciting. I, I think there's a very well done action sequence. I think episode four, it just worked for me better than any prior episode. Just like I could understand what was going on. I understood what the stakes were. I understood what all the characters were talking about. And so look, I, I know I feel like I'm beating up on the show. I'm enjoying it. I, I, I'm just, I, I remain skeptical of, of what it's trying to accomplish in terms of television storytelling. Yeah. And I think I'm a little thrown at just like the tone of the show, but I'm also fully prepared to, you know, like if you look back at a lot of, you know, really bold movies that did interesting things that initially critics were kind of like, oh, I, I don't know what this is. And I'm hoping that when I get to the end of Andor, I really feel like, oh, man. Like, this show is giving me the Star Wars story I didn't realize I needed. So that's my big hope. And because I think on a writing level, in terms of, like, just the quality of the production, the show is really delivering. It's just not quite, I guess, hooking me emotionally yet. Um, I will say I do look forward to a week of work explaining to uh, some of my coworkers who Mon Mothma is and where they've seen her before. Uh, oh, yeah. Is that... Um... The senator. Who is she again? The senator. Yeah, she shows up. Yeah, yeah. In... But what, what? Where did she show up prior to this? Was she in Rogue One? She's in Rogue One, and she was also in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I gotcha. I yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Again, it's it's a lot of deep canon stuff. So it's very clear that uh, you know Tony Gilroy and you know Dan Gilroy um, wrote this episode, but like it's very clear that they are kind of geeking out as well in their own um, kind of restrained, very adult uh, kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> well, just because, it, like, I, I recognized her, but it didn't throw me that I couldn't place her. Mm -hmm. So that was fine. That, that sort of stuff works, you know, yeah. whereas you drop somebody into, uh, you know, uh, hear all, trust nothing, uh, this Deep Space Nine crossover episode of Lower Decks. If you drop, like, uh, somebody who's not super familiar with Deep Space Nine into this episode, you know that they're going to feel like there's a lot going over their head. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. Yeah, on that note, our assignment is complete. We'll be back next week with episode seven of Lower Decks season three and the latest episode of Andor. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? We're coming like, we're, we're edging towards the end of season three Lower Decks. I know. How did we get here already? Oh, <laughs> uh, look, time flies. It's just so funny because, you know, in all fairness, you and I were in Vegas when like the first couple episodes dropped. Like we, we, we were due, and then we did that uh, road trip to LA afterwards. So we got home and then we had to catch up on like two episodes because we did watch one of them while we were in Vegas with our friends. So I think that's part of it. It's just like, that's why it just seems as if it's, you know, nearing like kind of the, the conclusion at this point. Definitely, definitely. So please leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts. Any reviews help with rankings and whatnot. And you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Vancouver, comma, USS, Smith. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P. P is in Promenade. Visit for the win. <laughs> O-R-T-O-N. Yeah, I guess I could have said visiting the promenade, but nonetheless... Okay. Hey, I love Vancouver shoutouts. So. <laughs> hey, Kim, are you jealous? Um, I get to enjoy the uh, the USS Vancouver, but they don't have a USS North Vancouver where you live. And they never will. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you can always hope. Hey, look, I will never say, and they never will when it comes to lower decks. That's it's true. Always, anything's always possible here. That's true. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see what the future holds. 
Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.